Welcome back to another episode of Talking With Our Mouths Full. I'm Nightingale Nguyen. And I'm Michael Chan. Today we're doing something a little different because we have a very special guest whose life is so huge and filled with so many incredible stories that it's going to take several non-consecutive episodes to cover everything we want to. Today we have with us actor, photographer, and legendary cinematographer, Rhett Marita, and this is our first retrospective. Welcome to the show, Rhett. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do wish we had a live audience. That would be a lot of fun. (laughs) It would be. Cue laugh track. (laughs) Have a life, yes. Yeah, so, um, hey, before we dive into our interview, we are a food podcast, so let me ask you something, Rhett. Are you a fan of sushi? Oh, my God, am I ever a fan? Yes, I'm a sushi lover. What kind of sushi do you like? Well, I generally like, uh, actually, specifically, sashimi, which is just raw fish. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like dragon rolls. Oh, I, I love dragon rolls. Yes, I love m- many different types of fish and vegetables and rice put together. Uh, I like spicy California rolls. Spicy salmon rolls. I like a lot of spicy rolls in general. Now, I know a lot of people debate whether it's good to use soy sauce with their sushi or not. Do you like soy sauce with it or not? I could live on soy sauce a little. Really? I literally drink that stuff. It's <laughs> From the time I was a very young child, I used to, if I had any soy sauce in Japanese shoyu mm-hmm. on my plate, when no one was looking, I'd pick my plate up and tip it and pour it right into my mouth. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm just trying to... Oh, man, my face is scrunching up right now, imagining <laughs> the saltiness of that. Oh. Yes. I'm like... I'm weird. Half of the sushi I eat will be, like, no soy sauce. I'll have no soy sauce. The other half yeah. has a little bit of soy sauce with uh, wasabi. Always half-half. It took me a while, actually, to get used to wasabi growing up, actually. Oh, really? I, I didn't like wasabi for years. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a spice wimp, but something about the way the spice hits me, like, it goes up my nose, kind of. Uh, yes. Yeah. I don't know. It just gives me a rush. It's, it's very, it's, it is very different. I mean, I've heard that description for wasabi generally is that a lot of other spices go into your throat and then go down, but mm-hmm. wasabi goes up and goes into your head. And people talk about that rush because they can feel it go in and go up rather than down. Mm-hmm. What about you, Knight? Do you like sushi? Yeah, I like sushi. And what kind do you like? Whatever one go- I eat. I don't know. Like I, I eat <laughs> whatever is served. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for playing a long night. <laughs> Well, okay. If I'm it's talking. food, I'll eat it. <laughs> okay, it's fine. Simple. But just so you know, Michael, here's an interesting tidbit about, yeah. for example, my family. Mm-hmm. And this is actually, I find this is not just my family as well, but a lot of my generation of Japanese Canadians uh, don't like sushi. Really? Yep. Ooh. There's a whole history we'll get into at some point. It might come out even in this this particular segment. It has to do with rejecting Japanese food 
that was that occurred after the war. But anyways, let, we'll get yeah, into we'll, this. we'll get into that later. The reason why I'm talking about sushi is because I actually got some uh, food from Mitsui Sushi, which is our featured restaurant today. It is at 10,815 Bathurst Street, which is in the plaza on the northeast corner of Elgin Mills and Bathurst in Richmond Hill, near my home. Now, I actually found this sushi restaurant during the pandemic. They had a pretty good two-for-one deal on Uber Eats, and my wife and I were craving sushi, so we ordered, and boy, were we surprised. The sushi we got was delicious and seemed quite fresh considering the times we're living in, and that it was delivery. Like, I never expect delivered sushi to be any good, so... It was nice to get some that actually tasted good. So today I ordered their California rolls, their salmon kamikachi rolls, which has spicy salmon, avocado, and crunchy bits, beef mm. gyoza, and a taro milk tea with white tapioca. Mm -mm -mm. Okay, I'm going to start digging in to see how uh, today's meal tastes. Knight, do you have a history bite for us? Yes, I do. Here comes the California roll history bites. Mm. So, a California roll or a California maki is a maki sushi sushi roll that is actually rolled inside out, meaning rice on the outside of the seaweed, and it usually contains cucumber, crab, or imitation crab, and avocado. Now, did you know that California rolls aren't Japanese? The identity of the creator of the California roll is actually disputed. Several chefs from Los Angeles have been cited as the dish's originator, as well as one chef from Vancouver. Now, the earliest mention in print of a California roll was in the Los Angeles Times and in Ocala, Florida newspaper on November 25, 1979. Less than a month later, an Associated Press story credited a Los Angeles chef named Ken Sousa at the Kinjo Sushi Restaurant near Hollywood as its inventor. This claim stood uncontested for more than 20 years. However, California rolls are recently more commonly being attributed to Ichiro Mashita, another Los Angeles sushi chef from the former Little Tokyo restaurant Tokyo Kaiken. According to this account, Mashta began substituting the fatty tuna with avocado in the off-season and after further experimentation developed the prototype back in the 1960s or early 1970s. Even more recently, Japanese-born chef Hidekazu Tojo, a resident of Vancouver since 1971, claimed he created the California roll at his restaurant in the late 1970s. Tojo insists he is the innovator of the inside-out sushi, and it got the name California Roll because it was popular with patrons from Los Angeles. According to Tojo, he single-handedly created the California Roll at his Vancouver restaurant, including all the modern ingredients of cucumber, coast crab, and avocado. However, this really conflicts with many food historians' accounts, which describe a changing, evolving dish that emerged in the Los Angeles area. Still, in 2016, Tojo received recognition from the Japanese Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries for creating the California Roll and being named a Goodwill Ambassador for Japanese cuisine. Wow. Yeah. So, Michael, how them California rolls? Well, I gotta say, just like the previous times that my wife and I have ordered from Mitsui Sushi, the sushi today is very fresh. What I like is that despite it being delivered, the rice hasn't dried up, so it's still nice and tender. And the avocado they're using, I honestly never expect the avocado to be fresh, but the stuff they're using right now is amazing. Like, it, it's 
the color is perfect. It's not like rotten. You know, so, you know, it's like sometimes you get California rolls and like the avocado is browning, but uh, uh, no, yeah. it, it looks amazing and tastes even better. So I'm really impressed. Red, yeah. so after hearing that history bite, do you think California rolls were invented in Canada? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I would say that they were probably invented... I know they were invented on the West Coast. That's mm-hmm. a guaranteed aspect because most Japanese, if not all, were on the West Coast of North America previous to the war. Mm-hmm. So I would say... Hmm. I'm going to say no, it was invented in California. Yeah, because um, I, I would think if they were invented in Vancouver, they'd be Vancouver rolls. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's obvious. But I mean, there are many things that are taken over by our American brethren that we might start here, like basketball. And they that is true. Bigger in the States than, than it did in the origination. Although, you know, the Toronto Raptors are the champions right now, and we're going to remain champions until the NBA actually starts up again. <laughs> That's correct. Go Raptors! We're North! Yes. <laughs> but um, I just, the, the crazy thing about that history bite, and thank you Nightingale for that, is that the Japanese Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries gave the honor to the Canadian. Mm-hmm. Like, that's nuts. <laughs> but hey, you know what? If he uh, if he did invent it, kudos. Awesome. It's Canadian. Ha ha, Americans. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep uh, eating stuff. Oh, you're making my mouth water. Just, oh, <laughs> I should, <laughs> I should have got my own sushi to eat in sympathy with you. Oh, God. This is oh, good. my God. Two-way ASMR. Uh, yeah, exactly. That anyway, since we're talking about what Michael's been eating, yeah. I actually really love hearing what everyone online has been eating. Like, I love hearing what everyone's been telling me on Instagram. So, I hear that people have been doing random concoctions, like putting kiwi in cereal, which is actually pretty good. Oh. And then there's granola bars, meat from a company that normally sells to restaurants, and vegetables from a farm. Really cool. And rice pudding. That is really, really cool. Yeah, speaking of the the meat, yeah, I noticed that uh, some wholesalers that normally sell to restaurants, they're now selling to the public. That's pretty cool. So the meat hmm. doesn't go to waste, right? Right. Sorry, you are so saying So, Rhett, what have you been eating? Oh, I'm just going to ask Rhett what he's been eating. What have you been eating? Everything I can get my hands on. <laughs> I predict that when we get through this, the average weight will probably go up, you know, a couple of kilograms per person. <laughs> Every month, it's going to go up a kilogram the way things are going. Uh, I, I definitely feel that I'm uh, eating a, a, a little more of the so-called comfort foods where I can get mm-hmm. a chance to. And for and me, yeah. that's a lot more rice than I normally eat, to be quite honest. Any favorites right now? Uh, not really. I've changed my diet pretty radically just in the last couple of years anyway. Uh-huh. So, uh, And the other thing that I've been doing, which is weird but perhaps useful is that I started doing intermittent fasting and basic once a month fasting period. So in these times, not eating very much is sometimes useful. Well, yeah, I noticed you're in, uh, you're in fantastic shape. Do you attribute that part of that at least to your change in diet? Absolutely. I 
26, 27 months ago, I had one of those mornings where I woke up, carefully looked at myself in the mirror and thought, oh my God, how did I get this big? And uh, decided to radically change my lifestyle and diet at that point, mm -hmm. which just happened to be just a few months before I would be auditioning for my first film role in which I needed to be thin. So I somehow knew beforehand that I needed to be thin and started that process two months before. So that was the, the change of my lifestyle, which helped me lose weight. And now that I've reduced my weight to this particular size, I've been able to keep this weight now for two years, two and a half years now. That's amazing. So wait, was this uh, 2017 that you lost the weight? It was, no, it was the beginning of 2018. Beginning of 20, crazy. Because I um, had the exact same thing happen to me, but this 2017, where I woke up, it's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm at risk of a heart attack and a stroke. Yes. And I just jumped right in. I lost like 75 pounds. Wow! 75 so, pounds? Yeah, the guy you know now, and the guy, well, the guy you met, yeah. me, yes. now is not who I was before. I obviously you 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 lost a third of a guy or half of a guy. <laughs> it's hilarious. I was looking at a um a photo from my brother-in-law's wedding. Yes. And then me him and uh his wife's sister's husband, we were all like really large during that yes. wedding. Yes. And all three of us have lost a ton of weight. And we, whenever we look at this photo, we laugh because we're like, we're, if we took the same photo now, it would be one person less. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's crazy how that can happen. I, I mean, I lost 30 pounds and I thought that was, but I did it very, I lost 25 pounds in two months. That's amazing. But, okay, so you talked about your first edition and being an actor. Now, I also know you're a legendary cinematographer, but I, I want to go, like, further back. I want to go to the start of your life and kind of make sure. our way back up to your acting. So, where were you born? I was born in Scarborough, Ontario. Nice. Did you grow up there, too? Scarborough boy. Pardon me? Did you grow up there, too? Yes, I did. Grew up along the Scarborough Bluffs. I grew up in a small suburb uh, called Guildwood. Oh, yeah. I, I know the neighborhood. It's actually a really nice neighborhood. There's a, a great park. Yes, it does. It's a. It's got a wonderful park. It's got I apologize. Yeah, My least. daughter wants to be on a podcast. I can, t I can tell. She's <laughs> raring to go. I yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't do, translate what she was saying, but... It's probably a bunch of Cantonese uh, swears. I'll bleep that out later. Okay, good, good. I'm, I'm glad I don't understand Cantonese, because I'd be really upset with your, your daughter. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it's not directed at you, it's more at me. Oh, yeah, frustration with Daddy. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah, you were saying, uh, Guildwood area. Grew up in the old Guildwood area, which was, like I said, a very, it's a very nice, uh, secluded, I will say this, mostly white if not all white area in Southern Scarborough. Very unlike Northern Scarborough, the very opposite. So you're, you're Japanese, but was your culture uh, or cultural background really a prominent thing in your home growing up? Not really, no. And this touches upon what I was talking about earlier. In fact, I primarily only started eating sushi 
once I was an adult and left home. Oh, wow. Because sushi wasn't in my house. Well, no one in my house really could make sushi. Most of my relatives didn't eat sushi, so even on our extended family gatherings, there wasn't really sushi there. Wow. So wait, are your, both of your parents are Japanese? That's correct, 100% Japanese, yes. Were they from Japan, or are they also born in North America? No, they were born in North America. I'm what's called a sunsei, third generation Japanese Canadian. Oh, wow. So, uh, what did your parents do? My parents... Okay, so my mother was a nurse, a Victoria VON nurse. Mm-hmm. So a nurse that visits people when they've left the hospital to help care for them. Mm-hmm. And my father is a director of photography. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh wow. <laughs> Thank you for the input. Yes. <laughs> she was impressed my father's a DOP as well. She was like yeah. screaming with like, excitement. A DOP as well. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Wow. Wow. Uh, okay, so your dad was a DOP. You become a DOP. So yeah. was that, uh, since you seem to have followed in his footsteps, was that a big part of your childhood? I, I was around the industry up until a certain age, but my parents split up when I was seven years old. And I lived with my mother, so I wasn't actually then directly there with my father oh. for most of his career. Mm-hmm. So what was your childhood like? It was, uh, people would say, rather normal. Uh, I was a kid who, like every Canadian kid, wanted to be a hockey star, so I played a lot of hockey as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a lot of sports, actually, as a little child, and uh, grew up, as I said, in a primarily white neighborhood, Believing, and this is actually a weird psychological aspect to, to my character, believing that I was white. As in, you never just thought about your Japanese part Correct. of you? Correct. For me, it was because there was so little... There were, in my high school, for example, there were four Asians in my entire high school. Oh, wow. And one of them was my brother. So, I mean, it's like, you don't have any reference, as is you know, one of the weird things about growing up. So you kind of naturally just assumed, like an ugly duckling, that's a weird analogy, that you are what they are. What you see around mm-hmm. you is what you think you're that. And also, as you know, I've talked about later in my life when I became an actor, the lack of representation on films and television also made me think, well, I must be one of them because I don't see anything else <laughs> of any other color on television or film. As you're growing up, I grew up in the 70s primarily. Mm-hmm. Did anyone around you, I guess, remind you that you're Japanese, at least uh, your background is? There is obviously, for any person of color, there would be some racism that would occur. That It didn't occur a lot, but it did occur as I was growing up. And I don't mm-hmm. have a lot of memories of being specifically teased but obviously I have a few times I remember very distinctly oh yeah I was teased but that was probably only literally two percent of my time I was thinking more like did people ask you about your culture like for example oh how do you say that in Japanese or I don't know cultural questions never very very rarely oh wow I mean I I spoke perfect English supposedly (laughs) (laughs) 
as did my parents, and mm -hmm. uh, and outside of what I look like, that term banana really applied to me. Yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. Yeah. Okay, so when you get into high school, what were you proficient at? I was proficient at... Oh, yeah, I mean, here's a, here's a funny thing, which is kind of stereotypical at times. When I was in public school, I was really good at science, math, and English, primarily. Mm -hmm. And I excelled so much at math that I used to tutor other kids. Uh, when I was in, like, early grade two and grade three, I'd tutor some other kids that were having problems. Uh, the teachers would say, if you could help out these other kids in your class. So I used to actually go to their houses even after school and help mm -hmm. tutor them in math. When I got to high school, I started focusing more on arts, although I did play a lot of sports. And by the time I got to the, near my end of high school, I was failing math. <laughs> oh, wow. I had to take general math. I couldn't even take grade, like by the advanced math by the time. I was only taking general math by the time I got to the end of high school. Yeah. So what, uh, what kind of arts were you into? Primarily writing. Like uh, screenplays, novels? Uh, short stories. Short stories. Nice. Do you still have anything uh, I could read? <laughs> uh, from back then? <laughs> yep. Do you have a? Do you still write nowadays? Yes, I do. Love to read some of your stuff. Yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, I'll definitely I can, I can send you some things. Uh, I've cool. just recently started blogging for a, a friend of mine's uh, group, and that's oh, been that's a fantastic cool. experience. Fantastic! I really I forget how much I enjoy writing, but only now because I have basically the time, am I able to focus back on writing. I mean, here's a we're gonna jump forward a tiny bit here, but. Uh, Two and a half years ago, I sold my first uh, TV series to the History Channel. What? Dramatic TV series, yes. And that's, again, I can't, I don't know about the order of how to get into this, but that's just as far as writing's concerned, it's something that I was asked to do. I would yeah, definitely so like to hear uh, more about that. We'll save yes. that for further down the line. But yes. uh, back to your, your high school. So based on i guess what you were interested in like writing and you did sports what did you uh go to university for i had applied to a couple of universities for journalism mm -hmm. and then as a lark i said I, i'll apply to york for a film just for fun and i got into all the universities i applied to but at the last moment i really thought about it and i read a bit about people's early careers in journalism and it really sounded completely not interesting at all like writing obituaries or just the most boring articles and I thought I, I I don't want to be doing that and I knew that from my father's background and from being on sets when I was a young child that film was looked like it was fun so I thought okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the film program but up to that point I was sort of on the fence about either journalism or the film industry and journalism was only because I was told that it's unrealistic to try to become a novelist. Like, like you can't make a living as a novelist. It's like a shot-in-the-dark chance. So you have a better chance to make a living as a journalist, as a paid journalist, than you do writing novels. So I never mm -hmm. pursued that. Okay, so you ended up at York in film. Yes. And uh, how was your time there? Uh, my time there was very interesting, to say the least, because... <laughs> I grew up in the film industry and was working on sets from the time I was basically able to be useful on the set. Mm -hmm. So I was 
quite honestly, a terror to most of my professors at, my, at York University. Because <laughs> here you were, like, in the case of many universities, you have a professor teaching production who probably hasn't worked in production themselves for 15 years telling us about how things are done on the set. Whereas I'm literally coming off a set saying, they don't do that. We don't do that. What are you talking about? And continually putting down what the professors were trying to say was actual production techniques. I was like, no, we don't. They stopped doing that 10 years ago. Where have you been? And it was, you know, I was I bet they loved you. Of, of a professor saying, the professor knows everything, and like, except for Rhett. If he's in your class, then you got to be careful what you say, because he, he's going to tell you about what they're doing actually on the set, because he was just there, you know, last week or whatever on the weekend. So it was. So did you get your diploma the first week of school then? <laughs> what was that? Did you get your diploma the first week of school then? Yeah, right. <laughs> so it was it was interesting. So the one thing that I will say about my overall besides that, which I'll tell you another story about that, but besides that experience, was that you can learn basically eighty five percent of everything you need to know being on the set. That's one thing that I would say is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. However, there's like a 10 to 15% area that can only be taught through different types of research and study that happens in university that's not going to happen. You can't observe that. So I, I'm like, I was literally saying like 85% of what I learned in university, uh, I, could, I didn't learn because I already knew from working in production. But 15% about perhaps critical thinking and how to analyze films. I only could learn by going to university. So- Would you also say that... Um- a good percentage goes when you go to school it goes towards making mistakes like being able to experiment and apply everything that you've seen on set yourself yeah absolutely i mean i am a huge advocate of experience with your greatest teacher yes university is fantastic but on the other hand i would argue that rather than spending ten thousand dollars uh a year on some university including all your expenses and making films or whatever if you made if you made ten one thousand dollar films each time, and you had proper help at analyzing what you're doing wrong, you could learn as much each year making ten thousand dollar movies as you could going to university for four years. Because you would have a body of forty films that you learned on by doing it, you know, on your own, as opposed to uh, being taught to make a film and only making two or three films a year when you're in university. Mm-hmm. So, in regards to experience, uh, before university and through university, were you mainly doing DOP work on set, or did you do a variety of things? I've worked in every aspect of production. So, I mean, because I started as a production assistant, mm-hmm. so I'm literally I know what it's like to drive a five-ton truck full of props to set for a couple of weeks at a time, and I know what it's like to pick up props, and I know what it's like to be the lighting equipment truck driver and I just drove the equipment truck and when the crew came they would ask me for something and I'd go to the truck and give it to them and put it back into a shelf. I'm I'm almost done almost every job. I started out in casting. I was a casting uh, video cameraman. It was one of my first jobs I ever did as a PA. And that was in in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Early 80s in fact, yes. So, okay, after university what did you do? Did you just continue or did you change paths in any way? After university, I, well, here, I'm just going to go back a tiny bit about my university experience. Sure. And that is that I was always a filmmaker at heart. Mm -hmm. 
And my favorite year in university was in our second year when we began to make Super 8 movies. Each person as, you know, as basically the writer, if not writer, director, DOP. And you basically produce, it's like one step beyond just doing sort of slideshows, which was our step before making movies. And, you know, we had a required five or six projects we needed to do with three other options. And, of course, I did nine films that year. I did every film required plus three or four extra because I loved making short films. And I just realized what I forgot. When I was a young child, around 10, 11 years old, I had a Super 8 camera and I used to make stop motion movies. I forgot all about that. Oh man, that's awesome. So I was making these little plasticine movies when I was a little kid, around 11 years old. And uh, I had uh, had that experience before I even went to university. So I was used to making my own movies already. Did they hold, do they hold up? If people watch those today, do they hold up? <laughs> <laughs> no, especially not today. You can probably do a better film with a, like my phone can shoot a better film with, with my, I actually have stop motion apps on my phone. I go, this is way better than the, the really bad system I had when I was a kid. So the reason I said that was that if I fast forwarded from being an 11, 12 year old filmmaker to, to second year university mm-hmm. and making these super eight movies again, still super eight was the, the form that I was using. Even like, it was like six or seven years after that, I was still using super eight cause that was the cheapest film you could do back in that day before video was even even somewhat you know decent quality um, in the film program by the time you get your third year you start to work on 16 millimeter projects which are way bigger five times more expensive and you couldn't really make your own film so you had to team up with other people so what happens is rather than make five or six of your own projects you have to team up with people and maybe make two if not maybe three if you're lucky bigger films so what happened was you, they had a vetting process whereby you had to make propositions, hand in treatments or scripts at the end of second year at the, or at the beginning of third year in order to get them approved to, or in order to make, in order to be the director to make these movies. Wow. Because I had a kind of anti, it was almost like an anti-establishment or I, I always liked to do my own thing kind of streak in me. I thought the whole format was stupid or lame, and I refused to like to really work hard on on prepping anything to do for the third year. Uh, I thought it was too cool, whatever the reason was, and uh, I ended up not having anything accepted, so I couldn't be a director anymore. So I naturally, if you will, fell into being a DOP because that was something I could do, mm-hmm. and that basically set my trajectory for the next year after that as well. In fourth year, I was people came to me because they saw how well a job I did in third year and they, I, they naturally assumed I was going to be a DOP also because my father's a DOP. Right. So arguably, it already set my path of what I would be doing after that, even though inside I was still a filmmaker. So coming out of university, did you make any of your own films? Did you lean on your filmmaker side or did you just go into DOPing? I went into DOPing. And again, probably due to pressure of what would be easier to make a living at. Would you say that your father being a DOP and the experience that he had influenced a part of the decision making you uh, you had back then? Uh, it, it definitely did. My father had a great reputation 
-hmm. He was very well known, very well respected as a DOP. Uh, and honestly, as I would leave university and start working with professional companies, they knew who my father was. And so literally certain expectations or certain standards, they just assumed that I knew it because my father knew it. Right. Did he teach you any of it, of what he knew? Hardly anything. Oh, dang. Hardly anything. I literally, there's, I have like two pieces of wisdom from my father about all the things I do. Because my father knew enough to let me do it my way. Because he knew that we were different. And we are very different in our approaches to, to cinematography. My father's a brilliant, logical craftsman. I'm a completely by-the-feel, seat-of-my-pants, flying-off-the-cuff, instinctive DOP. Mm -hmm. I, he, my father technically knows things to the you know, thousandth millimeter. He knows light ratios to this, like, like a computer, whereas I know it instinctively. I know it just because I know it. I don't know how I know it, but I do. That's primarily our big difference in our, in our approaches to things. He would logically plan something out, have it mapped out, have charts and graphs. I would just literally go in and go, that feels like this, and just do it. So the industry expected you to have, I guess, your father's knowledge. Were you able to satisfy what they were looking for? I actually found it easy. Like, for me, DOP, being a DOP was like, I could do it with my left hand with one eye closed. That's amazing. <laughs> it also explains why that I would rise very quickly. Once I got established, it would rise very quickly in the industry. Because, yeah, you worked, like, with some really big names. Really early on. <laughs> like, ridiculously early on, but yes. And it was, it's, look, like, looking back at it now, it almost feels like it's a different person. And it almost feels surreal to me because of how far and how varied and vast and, and, and slightly uh, diverse paths my life would take me. I would go into so many offshoot streams from that point. But early on like 25, 30 years ago, I was on a completely different trajectory. So I I know from your body of work, you've done a large variety of things, like short films, music videos, um, TV, lo longer films. Is there something you've always felt more comfortable with or you liked more? Or did you just like doing the work and it didn't matter what it was? I think music videos were most of the time the, the most interesting projects that I would work on mm -hmm. or it used more of my skills than any other besides really powerful films and those were the two greatest things I mean I love style I loved very striking images I mean I did really well in commercials when I was really inter interested in it because I, I had a very strong visual aesthetic mm -hmm. but Music combined both my love of, of, of images with my love of sound or, or music. So it, it, it appealed to me more than, than anything else. Right. Because you're quite the singer and quite the karaoke-er. Which I only started about 18 or 19. I mean, I say only, but only 18 or 19 years ago is when I only did my first public singing, period. Outside of, as a child... Here's again, flashing backwards. As a child, I used to do leads in a lot of our school plays in choirs and things. What? But 
what happened was because I played a lot of sports, I used to get teased about being in choir or doing leads, and so I quit. Uh, no high school musical story? None. None. Aww. By the time I got to grade seven, I'd stopped singing in public. Even in about grade five, I was singing a lot from literally grade one to grade five. Like, they always picked me because they realized I could sing when I was in, like, literally from the time I was in grade one to do leads and, like, little school plays. That's cool. Well, I'm glad you picked it back up. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you're an actor now. You were a DOP. How did that transition happen? Like, because you were a DOP for a very long time. Yes, like 30 years. <sighs> that is a lot of time to put into something and then change. I will say, speaking about history though, it wasn't 30 years what I would say continuous. I mean, it started 30 over 33 or 34 years ago, but mm -hmm. I've had breaks from it. So what did you do in your breaks? Okay, so in my history, uh, go back to when I was about 26, 27 years old, I had been part of a, of a very big agency at, at about 25 a big new york agency started representing me as a dop and i thought it was fantastic because this was a very big famous new york agency called the gersh agency back then and we had like about six dops in our roster that won academy awards like literally my idols and so the fact that i was represented by this agency i thought i was on top of the world however when i was there for almost two years I didn't get a single job from that agency. What? No. I mean, it was a, it was an American agency. So that was one of the issues. And I was a Canadian. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, they, they selected me to be represented in their agency. But I was like literally the lowest of the low on their totem pool. And I just never got any inquiries, even though they were representing me. I, I'm, I can see my name on their roster. There's my name. I'm... I'm there. That guy won Academy Award. There's my name. There's that guy won Academy Award. It's like, so it was a rather disappointing. It was, all, it was just a little less, less than two years, and then my specific agent left that agency and started his own agency. And he said, "Do you want to come with him?" And I went, "No, I'll just stay with the other agency. I'll just stay there." Mm -hmm. And so a new agent took over, and she found my my demo reel, and she went, "Oh my God, your stuff's amazing." He goes, I don't understand. Have we ever got you any work? I said, no. She goes, I, I don't believe that. He goes, you've been here for almost two years. We haven't got you any work. He goes, no. And, and, and she was like, this is crazy. So she said as her task to start trying to get me work. And suddenly it, it went from a desert, nothing happening to I was getting scripts almost every week for big films being shot. Wow. And I went, what? this is the same agency? I don't understand how it could be like 20 months of apps like just crickets chirping to every week here's another script oh my god i can't even read these fast enough it's like here want to read this script it's like oh there's a meeting there's this this, this actor her name's um jody foster she's doing a feature do you want to meet her it's like what it's like hey there's this it's like it's like oh hey madonna's doing a tour Could, are you free for these dates we might need you to shoot this i was like what it was like it went like from that scale and you left all that to become an actor. <laughs> well, that, but there's a huge different change of arc. So that was, everything was changing. I started doing my work. And so the reason I told that story was that I got my, my first jobs, which was an indie feature to be shot in 
New York, well, actually specifically Williamsburg, and it was a Sundance film project, uh, partially backed by Truffaut, and my agent had had another DOP that was wanted to become a director, and like much of my work that I had done up to that point, had been a lot of DOPs hired me to be their DOP, which is I guess very flattering. Like a lot of times they go, well, these are guys that are DOPs, and they want to hire you as their DOP when they become a director because they think you obviously you're good, and again that must be very flattering your skills when other DOPs want to hire you as their DOP when they make that transition from DOP to director. So this one DOP becoming director, um, he shot a film called Stranger Stranger Than Fiction for Jim Jarmusch. Have you ever heard of that director? Doesn't come to mind right now. Um, he was he had this indie feature and uh, he was looking at uh, you know a lot of the DOPs in the roster and he said, oh, I like this guy. Can you know we arrange a meeting? So we had a meeting and after the meeting, my agent said, yeah, if Tom wants to hire you. So, you know, it's a little indie feature. We've come to New York. And at that point, I'd, I'd shot music videos and commercials, but I hadn't shot any features yet in New York. So I said, yeah, absolutely. That's, I'll come to New York to shoot this indie feature. I know it's not a lot of money, but, you know, it's it's my first feature in New York. And uh, my goal was New York, and then I'll go to L.A. That was my, my trajectory. Right. So I w- left Toronto. And I was rather arrogantly bragging to people about, okay, I, at that point I'd shot three small features in, in, in Canada. I said, but now I'm going to New York to do a feature. And I was literally thumbing my nose at people saying, Haha, I'm not going to come back here to this little two-bit town anymore. <laughs> this is what happens when you're like 27 years old and high on yourself. As many 27-year-olds can, ha- can ha- that happens when you're young and and people around you are giving you money and, and respect for what you do. So so I went to New York to work on this film, which I'll mention here. It's a film called Johnny Suede, and it's an indie feature. I'm there for a few weeks. They still haven't been able to find the main actor yet. So I'm still prepping, and we're still trying to shoot about three weeks from that point. And finally the director gives me a tape and says, look, I, I think I found the, the actor. It's this... It's this guy you got to got to see this tape so i see the tape and go you know what that 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 guy's good i think the only thing i would tell the that that actor is he should change his last name because i'm going to make fun of a guy whose last name is pitt <laughs> and it was brad pitt so there we were in new york it was brad's first film in new york and it was my first film in new york but two weeks in that production started earlier i started get feeling a little bit sick and i kept on working my way through it but it would eventually turn out to be this horrible, full-blown case of mono. Oh, my God. I had like 103 fever, 102.5 fever while I was working. But because I was a young, invulnerable young buck who had never really been sick in my life, I just kept on thinking, I'm going to push through this. This is my first feature. I'm going to push through this. But it got so bad that I would pass out in the middle of a shot while, while operating the camera. Oh, jeez. I'll never forget. I was doing a pan, looking down. The camera was like at my waist level, so I was looking down through the eyepiece, panning the camera, and then halfway through, I passed out. And at the end, I, the camera went funny. And the director was cut. It was what happened? I went, uh, I don't know. I got stuck. Let's do it again. And literally, what happened is I passed out as I was doing the pan oh and God. lost control of the camera. I was busy popping all these aspirins like nonstop, trying to like reduce my fever. At my bed, I'd wake up in the morning. And like my sheets were soaked because I was sweating all night. 
Jeez. I kept on trying to work, but it just finally near the end of the week, I said to the producer, "I can't. I've been working for like three days now with this horrible fever. I, I can't work anymore. I've, I'm literally I can't eat anything. I've literally lost five pounds in a few days because I've been so sick. But I was just so stubborn. I wasn't going to give up. And that was a film that changed my life direction because I actually thought that I was dying. And the weird coincidence was when I was there, I met a close friend of a friend of mine's who was a dance choreographer. He just finished working with Michael Jackson on Rhythm Nation. Oh, and wow. he was dying of AIDS at that time. Jeez. And I started to think, uh-oh, maybe I somehow got AIDS. That was my th train of thought. And it began a whole series of new thoughts in my life that caused me to reevaluate who I was, what I was doing, and what my life's purpose was. Mm -hmm. But it takes something that dramatic to start to change a person's life when you're kind of on the fast train to success. So between that and where you are now, did you, I guess, try to explore different avenues to see yes. where you belonged? Yes. So I came back to Toronto when I was sick, not knowing what it was. And I was getting some medical tests there, but I was getting all sorts of conflicting reports. Oh, you've got hepatitis B. Oh, no, no. No, you've got an ulcer. Oh, no, no, no. Like, they kept on telling me all this ridiculous information. And, and then once I was off the film, I didn't have any coverage, and I wasn't going to spend $1,000 to go talk to a doctor. So I you know, came back to Toronto, and uh, they, they diagnosed it as, as mono, and they just said, you've got to, you know, take rest and see if it, and let it pass, pass through. So um, I spent a few weeks kind of sick in bed getting over mono. At the same time, I thought, what else would I do in my life? And so I began exploring other options at that point. And that was mm -hmm. way back in 88, 89. Well, that's a long time ago. So yep. uh, <laughs> what options did you explore? I took a radio broadcast course, as an example, as we were describing earlier. Mm -hmm. And I, because I always dreamed of being a voiceover artist. That was one of my dream jobs my entire life was I thought if I could do anything, I would love to do voices for cartoons. That would be the greatest job ever. That is coincidentally originally what I wanted to do when I got into the industry. Voice over? Under? Through? I used to love to do Grover impersonations. <laughs> when I was in grade 6 and 7, I used to do impersonations that blossomed a lot when I was in high school as well. So I became this kind of like parroting trick monkey that people would take to parties because I used to do impersonations of all sorts of weird things. Nice. Yeah, that was my my shtick for being popular as a high schooler. <laughs> Which, again, I eventually rebelled against because I realized people just think I'm like a monkey on a leash doing tricks. <laughs> and I, I don't want people to think I'm a monkey on a leash, so I stopped doing it completely mm -hmm. for, like, you know, I, 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 like 10 years. So after you took your course, did you try to get into it? I did. I created a couple demo uh, tapes uh, started going around to agencies, and that was my first, although at that time I didn't realize it, first indication that there was a kind of white wall that I couldn't get through. Because agencies indirectly were actually saying to me, well, we can't get you work because you're Asian. That's what they were saying to me back in the uh, early 90s. And this is for voice work? Yes. Dang. Because, yeah, I, you, uh, no better way to put this, but you sound white. Yes, absolutely. So 
that was my first realization. I mean, again, I'm only looking in hindsight, did, did I realize what was going on? But it was because, as I described growing up, there was so little Asian representation. There was so little call for Asians generally that why would an agent want to bring on an Asian when they're, they're not going to get any chance to get any work for them anyway? <laughs> they were just, you know, not wanting to waste anybody's time, although they wouldn't tell me that directly. So what came after the voice work? Uh, then I began to explore, well, oh God, there's just so many avenues. I have a crazy kind of near-death experience, one of many, well, not many, many of two, not many, two, involving drugs that I experimented with when it came back to Toronto Ouch. after, after uh, my bad film experience. And... I was taking MDMA. I don't again. I don't care if this is, this is part of my history. So, I was taking early MDMA, which became like an early form of ecstasy, and it was in, in an experimental phase because I had been this super hardworking Type A DOP rising star for most of my life up to that point, and I literally I didn't party even though I was out at clubs and things. I didn't party because it just got in my way of my DOP work. The only reason I didn't party was that I couldn't afford to be hungover because I was shooting a music video the next day or whatever. So I never really partied or did anything uh, in my 20s because I was just too busy working all the time. But after this disastrous film experience, in which I had to leave it because I got too sick, I uh, came back to Toronto and said, okay, not only am I going to try other avenues of work, I'm going to just try a bunch of things. And so I tried... Uh, this drug that a friend of mine had told me about and it had adverse ex uh, effects to, on me the first time I did it. Um, I kind of started panicking, which like many drugs is not good because it heightens your adrenaline, which means your heart starts to speed up. And then I actually thought, oh my God, I, my heart's going racing. I can't stop this. Uh-oh, I think I'm going to die. And I passed out. And as I was passing out, I thought, oh, I... God, what a waste of a life. I had just tried something I shouldn't have tried. What a, that was a mistake. Uh, I, I promise God, I mean, if I, if I come up from this, I, I'm, uh, I will try to do other things, not stupid things like this. And I passed out. And when I awoke, I just remember that last thought, which was, I'm going to try to do things better. I'm not going to do stupid things. Uh, I'm going to look for other things. So that's what I did when I, when I awoke the next day. Mm -hmm. What's the... Uh biggest avenue that you took like the longest thing you did between well, this i started to research alternative philosophies if you will mm -hmm. and i looked at all the things that were on the fringe of science it, this was like before new age was new age but i was literally into the new age before new age became popular right so any alternative healing, thought, process, energy, vibration, sounds, studies, I started to get, get into that realms. There were two big bookstores in Toronto. One of them, I think, I think, I think they both might be there. One's called the Mega Bookstore, and the other's called Seekers. And they're the two. Both. Yeah. They're the two bookstores that sell the most alternative philosophy studies books in, in Toronto, basically. Oh wow! I had no idea. So I used to live in those bookstores, buying books on everything that was just, you know, out out there, off the wall, whatever description you might have. 
but you know basically in the realms of spirituality and new age studies mm -hmm. and then by so-called coincidence or random chance I got a weird phone call from someone who said they knew me but upon questioning this woman I realized she doesn't know me and I had to figure out how did you get my number this is back in the early days when it was hard to get people's phone numbers mm -hmm. randomly I mean you'd have to look them up and know who they are so I asked her like how did you get my phone number and she wouldn't tell me but she agreed to meet me which you know I thought this is kind of weird but I'm yeah. trying weird things anyways <laughs> And then she told me she was a stripper. So then I was like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, I don't know who you are. You got my number, and now you want to meet me. Um, okay. So that, that intrigued me, so I had to go meet this person. And I had, quite honestly, I'd, I'd been into strip bars maybe two to three times maximum my entire life at that point in my life. It's not really my cup of tea, as they say. Literally, the only time I had to go to strip bars was whenever I was doing meetings with a lot of record producers for doing music videos. They like to meet in strip bars. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, God, here, i got to go to another strip club. Why? Because the record producer went, oh, yeah, yeah, here we go, another strip club. This is, of course, the 80s. So yes. <laughs> it's a, it's, 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 it was that the air of the record producers, cocaine and strippers. I mean, that was just the David, David Lee Roth kind of era. So I met this woman, and... Uh, I was intrigued. She was a very striking, super hot Brazilian woman, and I was again going, "Whoa!" And and uh, we're having this conversation, and this conversation caused her to go, "Wait a second, hang on," because I would never normally do this, but I happen to be attending these these meetings at this one place, and they do meetings on some of these topics you're talking about. And so he gave she gave me a pamphlet for this, in brackets, esoteric school in Toronto that taught. Basically, all these things I described that I've been reading about in these alternative bookstores, there was a, a center where they were teaching courses on everything that I'd been, almost everything I'd been talking about. Mm -hmm. And that began my esoteric journey in, in, a, in a sort of hidden school. Some people might call it a cult, in fact. In fact, some of my friends took me to, had me meet um, cult deprogrammers because they were so afraid of how much work I spent in this school. Oh, jeez. But that would be one of my side journeys for the next almost eight years. Because mm -hmm. I felt it was much more useful for me to talk to people rather than reading books and not having a, any conversation ability, just to read a book and go, well, how can I debate this? Or how can I try this? Or what, what are you talking about? You can't say that unless I talk to the author directly. Whereas when I went to courses and meetings, I could actually talk to instructors about something I'd been reading about you know, in some of these books. Did these, I guess, did learning all these things lead to a change in what you're doing at work or what you're doing for work? At first, it gave me a hard time working, period. I really struggled because what I was seeming to be learning really showed me of how, I don't know, duplicitous or dirty a lot of the film industry is, or in the music industry especially, and it really made me not want to work in the music video industry specifically. But it, it, it was basically, I mean, I can't describe something that I was intensely focused in for eight years in a short period of time and have it give it justice. No, yeah. We can but, definitely, I guess, go deeper into it 
on a different retrospective. Yeah, but I would say that I was trying to be a better person. That was part of the main core, was just trying to be the best person you possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And when I worked in the film industry, it would bring out some of the worst aspects of me, such as I described the arrogance that I was describing earlier about thumbing my nose at people saying, ha ha, you little small fish. You know, I'm going to be a big hotshot somewhere. I don't need to hang out with you little, you little small fry. That kind of attitude, which was enhanced because of agents and people giving me all this praise when I was a young kid and money as well. So um, I realized how counterproductive that was to me being a better person. Mm -hmm. And that made it hard for me to work in the industry because it was like uh, someone pointing out that I'm a, there's, a, there's a Mr. Hyde in me. And every time I work in the industry, I start turning into Mr. Hyde, whereas I want to be Dr. Jekyll. So is that why you turned to acting? Because it brought out a better side of you? No. <laughs> okay. I think acting might be on Mr. Hyde as well. <laughs> oh, no. But you're really nice on set. I know I don't have much experience with you on set, but the one time we worked together was amazing. It's because I'm very comfortable on set generally. That's why I... Having grown up on sets, literally, it's it's where I feel at home, mm -hmm. most comfortable on sets, um, and uh, acting is just an extension of my ability to express myself. So, as I've continually gone through different aspects of the film industry, I've kept on filling out certain sort of rooms, if you will, of my of my of the bigger house that is Ret. And as each room gets filled, I have to move to the next room. And acting was another room that was empty. I went, hang on, this room's empty. And so I've, I've entered that room, and I'm starting to fill, I'm starting to you know, put things into that room. Mm -hmm. And it makes me happy to be trying to fill up a room that has nothing in it, as opposed to trying to stuff something into a room that's already full. Is this room a more comfortable room than the one you came from? Uh, that's an interesting use of the word comfortable. <laughs> it's... I can't say it's comf it's it can't say it's more comfortable or less comfortable. It's, Are you happier? I'm happier than I was as a DOP in the last 10 years of my career, but I'm equally as happy as as I was at the beginning of my DOP career when it was all new. Mm, if that makes I sense. See. Yes, absolutely. I basically in that analogy I was using, I filled up my DOP room in the first 10 years of my career because I did so much in such a short period of time. In the next 10 years, I was struggling because it felt like I was doing basically the same thing and losing interest. And because I'm not, in this respect, I'm not a good actor. When I'm not interested in something, I can't fake it. And it became very apparent that I was not that interested in being a DOP anymore after about 10 years. Right. However, it was a, it was a great way to make a living, but my heart wasn't in it. And that contradiction became apparent to me as I as I, you know, I continued on, but also it shot myself in the foot because no producer and director really wants to work with somebody that doesn't really want to be doing what they're doing, except for the money. Yeah. And and I would say that you know I'm I'm a good cinematographer too. It's not like I'm I'm not a great one, but I'm a good one, and it come it comes natural to me. That in some respects it's easy, but it's not where my heart is because I feel that I learned everything I really needed. I got everything from that experience in the first 10 years of my career. Yeah. So why acting? Uh, gives me a stronger ability to express a story. 
ultimately that's what it comes down to. One of the my own personal addings up about being a DOP is that I can't make a good film great as a DOP. I can't make a great film, you know, absolutely stunning as a DOP. I can only assist what's happening based on the, usually the writer, the director, and the actors. That's all I can do is assist whatever they're doing, whatever they're bringing to it. If they're making it good, I can make it 1% more better, but that's about it. I can totally screw up a film, uh, but even then, a great movie, I can do a poor job and make it only a good movie, but I can't make it a horrible movie unless I absolutely technically screw the thing up. So I've ultimately very little control of the final product. I can enhance it by a very small amount, or I can sort of keep it where it is, and that's all I do. I'm I'm almost like a typesetter in a printing pre- at a printing press. Yeah. I don't change the words, I just adjust how it's read, how it's printed. And what became apparent to me that I saw in my career and other people's career was that I saw that some DOPs would do just an okay job as a DOP, but work on a very good movie, and that would catapult their career way farther than a job where I did an excellent job on a mediocre film. Yeah. The best looking mediocre film is still a mediocre film. People don't, don't go to movies to because it looks good. They go to movies because the story is compelling and the acting is good and, and it's managed by a director in, in competent fashion. But you know, my other experience about directors and my understanding from working with the best directors I've worked with is that the best directors I know, when they're in the right place, when the, when the film is in its zone, they do very little to actually to direct it. They literally stay out of its way. The more they say, the more it causes everyone to stumble. I can see that, yeah. So as an actor, you're able to bring, I guess, more, you feel? What I've seen with actors is that actors can make a good a good script great. That is true. They can also make a good script <laughs> I'm swearing there, you can beep it out. Yeah. There's another way to describe it. And that's also what they can do. But and then an editor director, will edit them out. <laughs> or, yeah, or the director would, able, would rein them back in. That's the only time a director really needs to go, hang on a second, what you're doing is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if honestly, if an actor is like 5%, sort of 10%, this is the, obviously just a, a, off the top of my head figure, but if an actor is 10% off, that is fine. As far as I can, in my experience, that is fine. When you try to correct that 10%, usually cause actors to stumble so much that it, it drops their performance by 30%. And again, these are just relative numbers I'm using. So in everything I've seen, the best directors know enough just to literally not put their foot out and cause actors to stumble. When actors are close to the right zone, let them be. Let them do what they're doing. All you can do is cause them to stumble on, oh, you got to fix this word. What a stupid direction. It's like the person becomes so fixated with that one word that they'll screw Everything up Everything else is screwed up. Yeah. Exactly. It's so anal. It's, so, it's like amateur student film directing. So let me ask you about your acting itself. What are you looking to do with it? And is this where you see yourself for the foreseeable future? Absolutely. I mean, it's opened up so many new areas, rooms in, in the analogy I was using, that mm. it's like... I was living in a box before, and as an actor, the only other time I experience this much freedom is, is when I write. As an actor, I can take a line and, and read it a hundred different ways. Each one of those ways is interesting. It may not be useful for the film, but it, I could cre- make it interesting. 
compared to a DOP, a DOP at a certain level, there's literally maybe six or seven ways maximum you could ever do any, you could shoot a scene literally in ways that are effective at the maximum six or seven ways. Often at times, only there's only three ways to really properly shoot it. As, a, as an actor, there's a thousand ways I could read just one sentence. That's I could true. put a pause in, in, on a different word. I can inflect a different word. I can bury a word. I could lift an eyebrow at a certain point. I can, I'm combining my voice with my facial expressions and my body movements. That is way more than what I can do by adjusting five lights and pointing a camera at a slightly different angle. So the acting gives me a way broader uh, canvas to paint on. And also gives me way more colors to use than I can as a DOP. Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to bring this episode to a close now as we've gone on for quite a while. Nightingale, did we get some questions uh, for Rhett from our Instagram listeners? Yeah, they want to know what you've been eating for breakfast. We have really caring listeners. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. Interesting. Okay, so because I'm on a specific diet, I generally eat fruit or a protein shake for breakfast. But my breakfast usually isn't until way late in the uh, early evening because I have a, I'm eating a six hours versus eighteen hours fasting around. So I usually eat around six o'clock to like twelve o'clock at night. Wow. And so, so my breakfast is at six o'clock, usually around that time, and it's usually fruit and uh, some uh, grains or most of the time it's a protein shake at least 40 to 45 grams of protein that's a lot of protein but that's amazing yeah, yeah. but yeah any arguably it's been proven that you can't really process more than 45 grams of protein so it's 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 crazy to eat more than that so yeah is there a, a brand of protein that you're using that you like more than any other is this a plug now? <laughs> hey, just curious. I, it's for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, lately, I've been using uh, Vega brand, mm -hmm. Vega protein. They have great protein bars as well. Um, and uh, my, my protein bars of choice are uh, Simply Protein. They're, they're a really great ratio of uh, calories to protein. But uh, usually the ones I eat are 150 grams of, uh, sorry, 15 grams of protein to uh, 150 grams uh, calories 150 oh, calories really which is like a one-to-one -one ratio as i call it yeah. a fantastic ratio yep for a protein bar um nice. and the other brand is quattro is the other brand of uh oh, i like quattro yeah yeah i really like that uh cool so yeah those are my two protein plugs <laughs> <laughs> i get myself in popeyes pushing popeyes popeyes mm, pop <laughs> yeah I, I go to uh popeyes and bulldog nutrition yes okay so I uh, hope, listeners, that this episode has, I guess, given you enough rent for now that you've had your appetite wet for rent. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. This is the end of our first retrospective, giving you kind of an overview of who Rhett is. Uh, our Upcoming retrospectives will have basically stories from his life, his career. So we hope uh, you are looking forward to those stories as much as we are hearing them to hear them. All right, Rhett, how can people find you online if they want to connect? If they want to find me online on Instagram, you can find me on my handle, Rhett and Jet. 
R H E T T N, letter N, J E T T. Jet is my uh, stage name for my singing persona. Jet Black is his, his name. So Rhett and Jet. Rhett and Jet. Nice. And he has great music videos recently. I love <laughs> them all. I've been trying to stay busy, and because, as I've described to you, that music videos are my, of how I started the industry, I found uh, I'm uniquely qualified to shoot my own music videos, considering a music, I did a lot of music videos when I was younger. I started singing about 20 years ago, and, uh, and, uh, and many years of being a DOP director means that, yeah, of course I can shoot my own music videos in isolation. Yes, you can. <laughs> and I understand you also shot a uh, short film for the Isolation Short Film Festival. I did. I did. I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed that because, as I have described earlier, it reminded me of when I was in second year university, my favorite year in university, when I was given the ability to make my own films. That's exactly what the Isolation film was. It's like, this is, second year was my favorite year in university. I'm making my own movie. I love it. For the record, I submitted a film as well that I made with Timothy Ng. You know him. You're going to kick our butts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nightingale, how can people find you online? Y'all can find me on Instagram at night.nguyen. Awesome. And I am on both Instagram and Twitter as at Michael C.W. Chan. Plus, I have a website, michaelchan.ca. Everyone, thank you so much for continuing to listen to our show, for continuing to support us. We hope you are all safe and sound. So stay home, stay safe, and stay Stay hungry. hungry. (laughs) Yum. This has been Talking With Our Mouseful with Michael Chan and Nightingale Nguyen. The music by bensound.com. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you join us on Instagram and Twitter at at TWMFpodcast. We have a lot of bonus content like food pics, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, and more info about all the places Michael and Nightingale visit. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. A new episode comes out every two weeks. Thanks again for listening, and stay hungry.